At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Hello and welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, the CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We talk to innovative clinicians, policymakers, patients, caregivers, executives, and advocates who are fed up with the status quo and have a desire to change it. We take you behind the scenes with people across America that are putting patients first and restoring trust in American healthcare. A common theme amongst previous episodes and really throughout why we do this show every single week is innovation in medicine is driven by the practitioners. What do I mean by that? I mean that free of red tape, free of bureaucracy, free of the administrative burden, physicians and providers in this country are exploring new ways of taking care of patients. It's just that simple. Innovation happens on a one-to-one relationship, not running things up the flagpole and getting permission a couple months later to be able to do this. Please welcome Dr. Christopher Bates, a hand and upper extremity orthopedic surgeon from the Hand to Shoulder Center in Fort Worth, Texas, to walk us through his journey and expand a little bit on what I mentioned a couple minutes ago of how innovation is really driven in his practice. Dr. Bates, welcome to Healthcare Americana. Thank you so much, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm pretty excited to chat with you today. (laughs) I always like to start out, well, I appreciate that. I always like to start out and get a little understanding of what drives you why did you become a physician and a surgeon in the first place? Oh, yeah. Uh, so actually growing up, I worked a lot with my dad. And my dad's a self-employed construction guy. We did a lot of finish work. And so, you know, hanging and casing doors, putting in uh, tile, kitchen cabinets, that kind of thing. And throughout that process, I really learned that for me personally, I gained an immense amount of satisfaction from seeing a job done and... Uh, I didn't know which route I was going to take in my life, and I f- ended up finding procedures in medicine and just absolutely fell in love because I got to talk to people, help them with their issue, but actually at the end of the day, see the difference. And for an orthopedic surgeon, we see the x-ray beforehand, the x-ray after. We see the tendon cut, we see the tendon repaired. And that's what really drove me into this field exactly. I thought you were going to give me a story about seeing a bunch of extremities cut off and you were talking yeah, no. about job sites. And I was no. like, whoa, no. all right, let's, let's no. get right into no, it, right? I see that now, though. Lots of fingers that are awful. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. So, those are uh, yeah, great people to take care of, you know, good working folk. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So I, I always like the origin story, right? It's always in, in powerful to set the stage of, of really where you came from. I'm kind of one of those people that says, all right, I start something, I finish it. This feels really good. In business, it's kind of the opposite, right? You get a little perpetuity. It's like, you just got to keep going, keep going, keep growing, keep getting bigger. So walk us through kind of your uh, your personal journey. You talked about you know working with your dad before, seeing projects. Was medicine always there for you? Oh, gosh, Chris, no, not at all. 
I was going to be a high school physics professor, right? And then I got to college and I was like, okay, I'm going to be a college physics professor. And I, I loved what it turned out that I actually loved about physics was the fact of how applicable it was to regular everyday life. And once I got up into that higher level stuff, differential equations, quantum mechanics, theoretical physics, and doing research in the lab, I realized I needed person-to-person interaction in my life. And I wanted to be more of, um, you know, like I said, see the success of my work immediately there rather than doing the math on the paperwork. It just didn't do it for me. Well, we, we could sit here and debate E equals MC squared and, and, how, <laughs> and the difference between theories and laws and science, but I'm not going to do that, right? It's a long time ago, Chris. All right, I, so, I embarrass myself. <laughs> so, all right. So physics uh, is an interesting springboard. I guess it's it's science related, right? Appealing appealing to the scientific mind. I'm just actually personally curious now. Where did becoming a surgeon come into that equation? Oh man, about third year of college or so. I had done, gosh, I think two or two and a half years of research during summers and school years. I was locked up in a lab essentially in the dark, <laughs> videotaping this tiny experiment. And I realized that that was what a lot of my future life held. And unfortunately, like I needed to find something else. And so I started branching out and asking people and looking at different things. And one of the opportunities I came across was an emergency room physician. And I just went there. I spent time with him. I saw what he did. I saw the procedures he did. And once I saw him doing that to people, I realized like this is really uh, where I think I should go. Now, some people out there might be scratching their head saying, well, Dr. Bates, you, you're a people person, you like interacting with people, yet you chose to be an orthopedic surgeon where you're probably working on people that are asleep, and <laughs> you're going to tell me, well, Chris, that's the innovation, right? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're spot on, Chris, yeah. I, and to be fair, though, just in general, you know, surgeons spend a, about half of their time in clinic. And so half of the time, we're talking to people who might need surgery, might not need surgery. We're talking to them after they've had surgery. We're walking them through their results and that kind of stuff. So there is a lot of interaction and getting to know people on a a one-on-one basis and coming up with a plan that really suits them and their personality and what their goals are. But for us, what we're innovating is doing surgery on people where they're actually completely awake, but the hand or the wrist or the finger that we're working on is completely asleep. Now, I want to dive in a little bit on that. You call it, and I believe I, I, the, the wide-awake local anesthesia, no tourniquet type of procedures. How new is this? Oh, not new at all, actually. If you look in the literature, there are studies on this type of technique going back two decades. I'm trying to remember if it's 20 or 25 years with some of these techniques being first implemented. And now it's been widely published on. And uh, is it better for patients for surgeries for the doctors (laughs) that's an excellent question chris and they were like like anything the devil's in the details right i think it is better for patients i think it will be better for surgeons and it is definitely better for healthcare as a whole if we talk about value now some of the great studies that have been done on this wide awake technique show that it is as good as if not better than having the patient completely knocked out under general anesthesia. And so we don't have any general anesthesia. You don't have any of that medication, any of that cost. And we're able to do these things here in our clinical office. So you don't have any hospital costs. You don't have any surgery center costs. And you know, when I talk to patients and they realize that 
they're only going to get one bill and it's often somewhere between 50 to 75% less total, but the same or better outcome? I mean, that's just a definition of value right there. So how widespread is this procedure? In America, not very widespread. In places like Canada, where one of the main people across the world who has really supported and spread kind of the gospel on this technique, he does about 95% of his cases on utilizing this technique. And when it comes to like, if you have carpal tunnel and your hand's numb and it's waking you up in the middle of the night and you need carpal tunnel surgery, in places like Canada, that, that is the norm. But it is currently not the norm in America. Well, I have to ask the obvious question here, Dr. What? Bates. Why? Oh, yeah. Well, I, uh, like most obvious questions, I think the obvious answer is money. So for a surgeon in America to do this with this technique, it's often done in big academic centers or it's where, where they're actually still taking the patient to the hospital. They're just not putting them completely asleep or they're taking them to the surgery center and they're doing the technique, but they still have anesthesia there just in case. When it comes to the private practice surgeons who are out there doing this, there is no financial incentive to do it in the office. In fact, there's a financial punishment because the surgeon is the one who supplies the anesthetic. The surgeon is the one who supplies the instrumentation, the sterilization, and all those processes. And so it actually, in the current system that's what most rides spread across the nation, they get paid the same amount that they would at the hospital. So why would they incur additional cost? And that's just the blunt reality of that aspect of medicine in America. It's a tale that we hear time and time again. You follow the dollar and here you go. This is how you, this is the answer to the question why. We're talking with Dr. Christopher Bates, an orthopedic surgeon at the Hand to Shoulder Center in beautiful Fort Worth, Texas. Dr. Bates, I mentioned kind of the underlying theme of this is that innovation really happens on the one-to-one level. It's it's a physician and a patient. You talked about, you know, that you spend a lot of time in clinic consulting with with your patients. We we answer the question of why we don't see a procedure that keeps people awake, lower the cost, just as effective. It's not more widespread in a really a hospital system dominated industry, I will say, across the US here. I'm just curious, you know, get your thoughts, kind of your opinions on would you be where you are performing this in some type of a hospital structure if you had to run it up the flagpole and say, hey, here's this really neat procedure that's been around for a while. There's a ton of documentation on it. Can I do this? Chris, there's a reason that I'm not in a big hospital system like that. And this is that reason, right? Because just like, I mean, you're obviously very well versed in the difficulties that arise in a complex system like that in terms of bureaucratic red tape and several levels of processing and, and approval right? If you follow the dollar, it is not in the hospital's best financial interest to allow the orthopedic surgeon or the plastic hand surgeon to do these cases in the office because the hospital can no longer bill for that facility fee. The anesthesia group that's either contracted or employed by the hospital cannot bill for that anesthetic. And so from a financial standpoint, the hospital loses out on that. So why would they be motivated? The only reason that I can ever come up with is if their ORs are so inundated with cases that they need to offload the cases that don't produce the best margins from them, in which case maybe they would. Interesting, considering that a lot of these quote-unquote elective surgeries, I hate that term, um, (laughs) 
they this didn't happen the past few years, and now they're loading things up. So, I mean, are you seeing that right now where there's so many surgeries on the docket because of the backlog from pandemic shutdowns that, hey, this actually might be true for what you just said? I, I don't know if it's true exactly. I do know that there is a lot of need right now for those elective cases, but I actually think that the biggest problem that I'm seeing here in this local geographic region mm-hmm. is that there aren't enough workers. There aren't enough circulating nurses. There aren't enough scrub techs. They're having difficulty staffing all the ORs because of a very high percentage of people, we think, just stopped working. I'm glad you mentioned that. We had a great episode talking about nursing shortages. And one of the main takeaways I had was actually childcare issues, which was really interesting because it's, it's always, you know, the issue is never the issue. It's always you got to look underneath the, the layer to see what's going on and preventing people from potentially going out and, and doing their highest and best calling. So a little bit of fun fact right there. If anybody wants to check out previous episodes. Now back to the action, right? Uh, so Dr. Bates, we talked about costs. We talked about time involved. Give us some example pricing of what you're able to charge a patient versus what somebody might see in a hospital environment getting the same condition treated? On average, on a macroscopic national level based on papers and studies, we're talking like 50 to 75% reductions in total cost billed to insurance. And payers are looking at like, how can we reduce cost by 5%? We're talking on these procedures, 50% or more. And so there is an extraordinary ability to save money. But the downside, you know, we're not creating anything. We're just transferring that money from away from the hospitals, away from the anesthesia groups, and back into the pockets of the patient and back into the pockets of the payers. And so those are the the huge winners. Yeah. So why isn't every insurance company out there putting more effort behind this? I think it's a matter of education. And I think it's only a matter of time until this is the standard because the math is there. The math makes perfect sense. The outcomes are there. I'm not taking credit for inventing this whatsoever. I'm taking credit for identifying that I thought this was a brilliant idea and could be really well applied in the United States healthcare system. And to be fair, Chris, like I am just a right <laughs> orthopedic hand surgeon and I am representing that part of healthcare. If I look at myself in the broader scope of internal medicine, surgical subspecialties, and you start branching out onto the entire cost of what a payer goes out, even if I save them 50%, it might be 0.001% of their total budget. So they may not care enough. Yeah. And, and I always love talking percentages with insurance companies too, because if you know, the cash price is a hundred bucks, but the insurance says, oh yeah, we, you're the, you know, you bill a million dollars to the insurance. Insurance says, oh, we, we saved you 50%. You're still coming <laughs> out you know, behind, yeah. you know, percentages, the old Mark Twain quote, right? There's lies, damn lies. And then there's statistics and percentages yeah. of savings always comes along in the same vein as that. That's why I'm always, I always wear my little skeptic hat when I, when I, when I hear anything along those lines. So I'm curious, you know, from, the billing side of it, you're billing less to insurers, but is insurance still paying the same dollar amount? How does it actually affect the dollars, the flow of dollars? No, it's way, it's way less, Chris. So in any standard surgical procedure, there are three fees that go to the insurance and patient, right? And so it's the surgeon fee, the anesthesia fee, and the facility, meaning the hospital or surgery center fee. And so 
all of a sudden now when there's just the surgeon fee, that anesthesia group and that facility, they don't get to charge anything because we're doing it in the office. Are there any other procedures and surgeries that you can see that this type of an operation would be suitable? Oh, totally, Chris. I mean, we're talking basically any extremity procedure, fingers, hands, wrists, toes, ankles, feet. Then you start talking about facial procedures, dermatology procedures. And some of those people and specialties have been doing something like this already, right? We're just able to do some, I guess a nice way, it would be deeper work, you know, where we actually have to go down to a flexor tendon or go down to a bone and actually do some work there. It would seem just far less dangerous, right? Rather than putting somebody to sleep and everything that goes into it with tubes and goodness gracious, it's it, it oh, yeah, takes we've an attempted army. To, we've actually attempted to kind of quantify, like, what is the actual risk percentage or number for like getting an IV? Because when you have a surgery this way, you don't even get an IV. You don't get IV. You don't get the general anesthetic like you're talking about. You don't get the tube down the throat, so you don't get potential damage to your tongue, damage to your gums, damage to your teeth, all those kind of things. You don't get the sore throat. <laughs> Chris, like what patients love, they don't get the nausea and vomiting when they wake up because there is no wake up. They're just talking to me throughout the procedure. We're chatting. And that's one of my favorite parts about it. They get to sit there and actually have more time with the surgeon because we get to talk during the procedure. And sometimes they just want to chat and tell me about their kids and I tell them about my daughter, you know. <laughs> but other times they want to know, like, well, what can I do afterwards? What are my restrictions? And we can really hash that out during the procedure. When we go to a hospital, we see that patient a much shorter period of time. We mark them, we chat with them, then we got to go off and do our electronic health worker to-dos. And then they're asleep and they don't remember anything else. How much of that human interaction do you think sets you apart? In terms of what we're doing? Mm-hmm. The conversation, the time spent with oh the patient. Oh my gosh, Chris. It's, and that's, it's awesome. I mean, I mean, that's what I find just absolutely fascinating because if anybody's had surgery out there, it's, hey, I'm your surgeon. Great. How you feeling? Great. Here's what we're going to be doing. Okay. See ya. And then you might have one or two follow-up visits. So walk us through kind of a patient experience when we come to your facility. If you've already seen me and we've decided we're going to do surgery and we're going to do, let's say, a carpal tunnel, we schedule it just like we would any surgery. But you come into our office, you can eat, you can drink. I have people come in with their morning Starbucks, right? And they are so happy about that. They come back to the office, like into one of our clinic rooms. We go over consent, all the standard required procedures. Uh, and then we start the numbing process. That's the hardest part of the day and the best part of the day, okay? And so what we do is we take a, a really narrow needle, usually a 27 gauge, sometimes a 30 gauge needle. That's just really small, much smaller than an IV even. The patient feels the first poke, and then we inject the medication in such a technical way that we hope they feel kind of a mild burn, and then that's it. After that, they should feel nothing. No more pain throughout the rest of the procedure and you know five hours. So once we get all that set up, that medicine has to sit for about 30 minutes to really constrict down the blood vessels. Once that's all done, we take them into our procedure room, lay them down. We clean the extremity completely as they would in the formal operating room. We drape it out and then we get started. And we do the exact same procedure that we would do in the hospital or the surgery center. But of course, we're chatting the whole time. Some patients really wanna see what I've accomplished and so uh, they'll ask to see, and you can actually show them. And 
for one of the procedures we do, we, you know, we expose one of the tendons in the hand. We can show them that tendon. We have them make a full fist and open it. And we can be, you know, 100% sure that we got that trigger finger fixed. And wow. the patients that want to see that, oh, man, they, it just it puts a big smile on their face, you know. It's just not the drugs talking too, right? No, there is no drugs, right? <laughs> there is no mental faculty impairment whatsoever. All that drug that we're given is just at the hand. And so once we're done, we suture them up, we bandage them just like regular. And then they get up. We run them through a standard kind of post anesthesia <laughs> protocol, right? Where we make sure that they're tolerating safe, all, all the kind of stuff that we have to do. They get up and walk out. And so it's actually much shorter than going to the hospital or the surgery center because there's so much less to do. No IVs, no waking up from the anesthetic, no can you tolerate ice chips, are you going to vomit, all those kind of things that people go through. You don't have any of that. They don't even have to have a driver. What's the time difference? Oh, man, it varies based on the case, but it's usually at least twice as fast. Some studies have shown that you can do basically like four times the amount of cases in the same amount of time because of the added efficiencies. And of course, we get into nitty gritty, you know, if you're at a hospital and you're going across four different ORs and you've got a physician assistant helping you and signing the patient up and doing all the paperwork and you're just a surgeon going from room to room to room, yeah, you can do a lot of cases. But if you have one or two operating rooms, it's much, much faster in the office to be able to do that. Yeah, I like approaching it from the patient's viewpoint, too, because it's very easy to kind of gloss over them from the medical standpoint and say, oh, look, I did 40 patients today. Well, yeah. what yeah. did they think about that, what right? Did they, like, yeah, they didn't even see the surgeon, you know? Exactly. <laughs> that's, yeah, yeah. Exactly. that's one of the nicest things about this. I mean, you just get more time to chat with them and talk with them. And I tell you, I mean, that scares some patients, but I have yet to have anybody cancel in the middle of it. Once we explain, like, it will be numb, we always have more numbing medicine, et cetera, and we get started and they say, I, I didn't feel anything. And then all of a sudden they end and I say, how was that? And they say, I don't know why I was so worried. <laughs> I would do that again in a heartbeat, you know? So well, it's because that, awesome. we, can, we can tell that you're very, uh, very casual, very calm conversationalist, obviously, uh, just interacting with you here on this episode. If you saw a newsletter, somebody told you, said, hey, Dr. Bates, the local hospital down the street is starting to do this procedure. Would you look at that and say, oh, good luck, guys. You're never going to get it right. Or would you be worried about that? If they were going to start doing it in the office? Mm -hmm. Yeah, if the oh, hospital no. started offering this rather than fully asleep. <laughs> oh, they, they could definitely do it. There are lots of um, kind of technical things, but it is much simpler as a whole in terms of, uh, you know, what... Mm. Oh, I guess rigmarole, you know, <laughs> all the things that go into having a formal hospital OR, anesthesia, sterile processing department, all that kind of stuff. Like they would need to adjust a lot of things, but no, it's well within their wheelhouse to be able to do it. Now, would they do it? I don't know. I think eventually they might have to. Well, and that was the basis for the question, because what you just described was, a, was, in my mind, a fantastic patient journey that really differentiates your facility and your way of practicing medicine from anything anybody would get in a hospital across the country. And so that was the basis of the question. You know, was it, yeah, they can do the procedure if they so chose. And like you said, I totally agree with you. They'd have to move a lot of things around there. But I still believe that that patient experience is going to be so much more elevated going to your facility and having you 
next to the bed rather than somebody who's just in there for the quantity. Well, Chris, that's very kind. Of course, yes, I admit, I, I agree with you, right? But that's part of the draw for me to be in my own clinic, in my own office, is I have control of the patient experience from start to finish, right? And simple things from the patient perspective that really do make a big difference, we got parking right outside the door. You're not parking in a giant 10-story parking garage, taking four elevators, asking three people for directions, getting lost seven times this way. It's, it's crazy. Um, and that's, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm disagreeing or bashing the hospitals whatsoever because they serve an amazing function and purpose. But when it comes to these extremity hand finger surgeries, most of the time you don't need that. This will be our last question for you here today, Dr. Bates. Do you believe we see a resurgence in the practice of what I'm going to call independent medicine in the U.S.? Oh, Chris, that's a tough one, man. I'm, I'm worried that it will slowly go away. I feel like over the past 20 to 25 years, based on the discussions I've had and research I've done, physicians in private practice or independent practitioners have just been being squeezed on both sides. I mean, if you look at the data for reimbursement for physicians over time compared to inflation and compared to the skilled nursing facilities and hospitals, it does nothing but go down. And so this kind of innovation where we prioritize the patient experience, number one, and really focus on value, there's going to be, <laughs> if we're able to make that work, it may provide a resurgence to private practitioners in this space because they'll have control of that patient experience from start to finish. You know, and if everything goes the way I think it will go, maybe we can actually increase that surgeon's reimbursement by diverting those dollars away from the hospital and away from the anesthesiologist towards the surgeons and back into the patient's pockets, back into the payer's pockets, and then help the surgeon for doing all that extra work, but still keeping the cost lower than it was. Emphasis on value, helping doctors take back those decision-making capabilities there. So, Dr. Bates, thank you for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Thank you for being a beacon in that conversation, that last question there, showing that, hey, this is this is real. This is a viable business model in order for people to practice medicine in the way that they wanted to in the first place. So appreciate you what you're doing, and thank you again for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Of course, Chris. Thank you for your time. That's going to do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to this show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com to catch previous episodes. Subscribe to our mailing list and visit our fantastic online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. 
Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.